question asked was um, snacks and snacks are life and how can I go on without them? And then uh, maybe are meals supposed to be larger and more satisfying composition to keep me going? I like to, I like to challenge language in situations like this, right? What is like worst case scenario for starters? We talk about, oh, I need to, to keep me going. I need some sustenance and things like that. Worst case scenario, what happens if you go four to six hours without food? Like I'm asking you this question seriously, not just like a knee jerk response. Uh, what would happen if you went four to six hours without food? Worst case scenario, worst case scenario, you're going to experience some discomfort. You're going to, you're going to be hungry. You might be a little bit cranky. You might be a little bit moody. I'm going to challenge for those who are new, you're going to figure out, I'm going to challenge you in the language that you use around food. And it's not because I'm trying to be a jerk, but it's to bring awareness to how our language affects how we behave. And often the inaccuracies that are tied up in the language that we use, right? Another one was uh, work, especially I need a snack to get me to the next meal. Why? Why do you need a snack to get you to the next meal? Stop and think about that language there again. Again, if we remove that snack and you have a space of time between meals, what's going to happen? It's when we start asking these questions and when we start challenging the language, the narrative that we've built up in our head and in our story and so on, that we start to realize that, oh, I was, I was probably eating more than I think. And it's like, yeah, what would happen if you didn't eat that snack? You see, hunger is not this boogeyman that needs to be avoided at all costs, right? In fact, I encourage you to become familiar with it. We, we need to know what actual true physiological hunger feels like as opposed to say, I'm emotionally uncomfortable. When our brains experience discomfort, we seek to resolve that discomfort. And one of the easiest, fastest, most rapidly accessible ways to appease discomfort is through food and food companies specifically go after this by engineering foods with what we call a high bliss point. It's, it's a marvelous combination of sugar, fat, salt. Donuts are delicious. They're engineered to be delicious. Potato chips are delicious. They're engineered to be delicious. They have food scientists who figure out how to make the receptors in your tongue give your brain a bigger hit because your tongue is actually pretty close to your brain. Not only that, so now we're putting compounds like in these foods, I, you know, let's say chemicals, but I, you know, we don't need to use alarmist language here because water is a chemical and oxygen is a chemical and everything. I'm a former research scientist, a chemist in particular, dealing with organic and inorganic chemistry. But when it comes to packaged foods, processed foods, they're engineered to give you a, a hit of bliss, essentially, to remove that discomfort. They're also intended to kind of hijack your biological signals a little bit here. But I just want to start painting a picture here. So another one was uh, my meal times are weird and inconsistent. So supper can sometimes be seven hours after lunch. And generally speaking, I will encourage you to space your meals, your feedings, if you want to call it that, roughly four to six hours apart, right? When we space our meals four to six hours apart, we actually become more efficient, shall we say, at burning dual fuel. We typically we have three fuels really, but um, the two that we're going to focus on is carbohydrates and, and fat. Certain situations demand we burn glucose for fuel. Other situations, we're more likely to burn fat for fuel, right? Now, back to the original point, four to six hours gap between feeding 
it helps us become more efficient at burning both fuels, okay? So now if you're in a situation where you're going seven, eight hours without feeding, so that's really less than optimal and, and, and is because at that point, hunger will build up to a point where you're less likely to make a good decision around food. And in that sort of situation, I would say you slot a small meal in between. It was, uh, I need some sustenance to handle bedtime crying. So this, this uh, participant is a mother with a child who puts up a fight when um, it comes time to go to bed. And I'm quite sure all of you mothers out there who have children, who have had young children, I mean, every child is young at some point, has experienced the fight to get a kid to go to bed, right? So here's the question. Is the requirement for sustenance a, is it meeting, excuse me, a physiological requirement for food? Stop and think about that. Or is it to endure the stress and discomfort and maybe remove some of that what we're feeling around like the crying? And I, I don't, I'm not saying this in, to, to diminish in any way the difficulty of being a parent. Now, if we're going to achieve the goals that we've set out to, we are going to need to become aware of the reasons that we eat. And in particular, the reasons that we eat outside of true physiological hunger. And we've been told that smaller meals throughout the day help with metabolism. But when you do the math and you start to think about this, eating, let's say I'm going to eat 500 calories worth of carbohydrates to stoke my metabolic fire. Five times six is 30. So you're eating 500 calories to burn 30. You see how the math doesn't work here? Your basal metabolic rate, your BMR, that is basically the biochemical processes that take place to keep you alive, whether or not you do any movement throughout the day. Your BMR doesn't start to drop until at least 72 hours without food input. I'm not suggesting we do that. It would be uncomfortable as there's other things that happen in that scenario. But realize this, your BMR, your metabolism is not going to slow down if you go four to six hours without food. If, if that was the case, human beings would have died off. You know, Throughout 99% of human history, we had famines, like where there was scarcity of food for days and, and weeks, and we would build up body fat as basically a famine reserve. That's, that's what body fat is. It's a, it's a famine reserve. So we have all the biology of surviving a famine while living in a world with an abundance of food. So we have famine biology in a feast world, okay? So there's no need to stoke your metabolic fire or stoke the metabolic furnace or whatever language we use to describe um, eating to somehow boost our metabolism. It doesn't work like that, right? And, and actual starvation, like you have to go weeks without food for that to legitimately set in. And, you know, this was studied and experimented. And, you know, these days doing a study like that would largely be considered unethical but we did gain quite a bit of useful data from this experiment, right? To really dispel the myth of, of starvation mode. If we think about those prisoners of war that were put through concentration camps, and it was particular graphic images we can see um, from like World War II, for example, the, these people were on starvation rations as prisoners of war and they kept losing weight. So th there's never a case of like, I'm not losing weight because I'm eating too little. That does not happen. It does not happen. There, there is things like adaptive thermogenesis and reduction in meat and things like that. But basically, understand this. You aren't in starvation mode. You can go days without food. And if you have body fat in reserve, you're going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be un unpleasant. And your body's going to kick in some survival mechanisms, not the least of which is to crank up the hunger hormone ghrelin 
almost sounds like gremlin, which is probably a good fit for it, you know, to tell you to eat more. So if you try to crash diet, if you try to restrictively eat in such a way that, um, you know, you're going you're to starve the fat away faster, your body's going to fight back. It will fight back by with a process called adaptive thermogenesis. And then on the other hand, um, it will also crank up your hunger hormones, your biological signal to eat. And then what will happen is you're more likely to binge and you're more likely to, you know, uh, justify eating significant quantities of unhealthy food because you reach a state of real, like, I hesitate to say severe discomfort, but basically, you know, you get very uncomfortable with the level of hunger because you tried to starve yourself. Yeah, you're going to be uncomfortable. I know. <laughs> That's why this is called a challenge. You will experience discomfort. That's the idea. But we're now going to face it. We're going to face up to the thoughts that we go through. We're going to face up to the feelings that we have. But we're going to become familiar with a degree of discomfort because that is actually required if we're going to successfully lose fat. Now, we want to, we don't, uh, we're not trying to be masochistic or sadistical or things like that. But the, the reality is uh, we're so often in this world told to quick alleviate whatever discomfort you feel, no matter how small it is, like get rid of it as quickly as possible. No, no, no. In fact, there's a phrase I quite like, and it's called hunger is the best sauce. You know, imagine you're smelling a really delicious meal and you're, and it's not ready to eat and you're smelling it and smelling it. And you're like, Oh my gosh, that smells so good. You know? And by the time, you know, half an hour rolls around, like when you eat that meal, it's going to be, it's going to taste even better because basically that hunger spending 30 minutes being hungry and, and being aware that food is coming actually primes your body to get more enjoyment out of the meal you eat. And that's why we could say, use this expression, hunger is the best sauce.